Uh, you can open your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be at the end of chapter 15, and then in verse 16, uh, and then chapter 16 tonight. Um, just as a reminder of where we've been, oh, by the way, this will be, this will be the last Wednesday night for a, a year. Uh, I'll see you all next year. So... Um, <laughs> Um, like the math is crazy. Uh, so yeah, the next time we'll meet will be um, January what eighth? Is that right? January eighth will be the next Wednesday night that we have together. So enjoy the break. Um, but uh, in the meantime, uh, just to kind of summarize where we were last week and prepare us for the the season finale, the mid-season finale uh, tonight. Uh, Last week, we saw Saul, who was given the charge in chapter 15 to go to take care of the Amalekites. Remember, the Amalekites had done some grievous evil against the nation of Israel by attacking them as they were wandering through the wilderness. They picked off some of the ones that were straggling behind and picked a fight with Israel by attacking them from behind, essentially. And Israel turned around and fought with them. Moses had to keep his hands raised, and the people had to raise, their hand, raise his hands and all this. And when he did, they, they won. And um, but the Lord had told Moses, look, when you get into the land, there's going to be a day where you go back after the Amalekites and you're, you're to wipe them off the face of the planet And when you do. And so Saul becomes the king and, and he's attacked the Babylonians. He's been king for some time now. And it has reached that moment where God tells them, you must go attack the Amalekites and you must purge them from the face of the earth. I don't want one Amalekite left over at the end. And so... Saul goes in, he kills the Amalekites, and he does ish what the Lord asked him to do. He purges most of them from the face of the earth, but what he leaves behind, or what he takes with him, I should say, takes captive, are the, the choicest of animals, the USDA prime animals he takes into his possession, and also king, the king of the Amalekites, a man named Agag. So he takes him into, uh, into captivity, if you will, because it, it, to be honest with you, it sort of makes sense. He devotes the rest of the things to destruction. In fact, the, the scriptures tell us in 1 Samuel 15 that he, uh, what he gave to the Lord as an offering, what he burned up was all the worthless things, all the things that were of zero worth. Uh, he, he burned them and, and sent them up to the Lord. Now, it has become evident over the course of Saul's life that he really quite prefers to listen to the voices inside his own head or perhaps uh, the voices in his own camp rather than the voice of the Lord. This has happened before and he, where he listened uh, really to other things, the voices in his own head really. As his men were leaving, he sacrificed on, the, on Gilgal instead of waiting on Samuel like the Lord had told him to. And so this has become kind of a pattern for him. And at the end of our time last week, we saw that God is basically telling uh, Saul through uh, Samuel that, hey, you, you've done it now. It, it's, it's being taken away from you. And I want to go back and revisit just the last little bit of that kind of interaction because I think it's important not only to understand the details, but also to understand the theological weight of what's actually taking place here before we get into the anointing of David, which will be in the second half of tonight, hopefully. So Saul has, again, neglected the voice of the Lord, and he, he has done it, it seems, in favor of the voice of his people. Now, you can imagine a scenario where 
it would be more expedient to listen to the people around you or where you feel like it's a little bit easier to listen to the people around you than to do what you know is actually right. It's really difficult, as it turns out, to actually do what is required of you when you know that there are people around you that think different. And you know that when you do that, uh, that they're going to have a problem with it. it. It turns out that when you have to meet flesh and blood and you have to disappoint them and you have to tell them what's not nice, that's difficult to do. It's really hard. And so then we have the question, because at the end of last week, it seems that Saul is remorseful. He expresses to Samuel this desire, I'm sorry, you're right, I've sinned. Now he tries to avoid it in fairness. He tries to avoid it all. And when he first meets Samuel on the road, he says, hey, look at me. I just did everything that the Lord asked me to do. And Samuel says, what's this I hear in my ears that you've listened to the voice of the sheep instead of the voice of the Lord? And, and Saul's, no, I didn't know. I didn't do that. Okay, I did that. Yeah, I did that. You're right. But then at the end of that interaction, Saul confesses his sin and he asks Samuel to plead to the Lord to forgive him and that he might worship the Lord, that he might bend the knee to the Lord. And in fact, look at uh, in your verse packet, 1 Samuel uh, 15, 24, and 25. It's the first one there. Read that out loud. This is Saul's interaction with Samuel. Somebody read that out loud. Okay, well, what more do you want from Saul? Doesn't the Bible tell us that the Lord is faithful and just and he will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we confess our sins? That's what he says. And so here is Saul confessing his sins and telling Samuel that his desire is repentance. So then why does it seem like he's not forgiven? Well, there's, uh, there are a number of people in Scripture that confess in a similar way to Saul, that say similar things to, to, to the Lord or to the Lord's anointed person, as Saul seems to do here, not least of which is Pharaoh. Pharaoh has said very similar things to Moses. In fact, when you look at what Pharaoh says to Moses in Exodus 10, 16, and 17, it will sound eerily similar. It says this, Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Well, that sounds like Pharaoh's repentant, doesn't it? Except, does Pharaoh actually repent of this? Absolutely not. Is, is it evident through Pharaoh's actions that he has absolutely no desire for repentance? That seems to be the case. Well, Saul, we know, have, has committed, you know, there's a lot probably in Saul's story that we're never told. There's probably lots of time gaps. There obviously is lots of time gaps in this story that just we're not told. We're told selective events in Saul's narrative. But 
one thing is pretty evident and becomes evident, particularly in chapter 16, is that there are reasons why the Lord does not forgive Saul. And the main reason is because he sees the heart. He reiterates that over and over when, it's come, when it comes time to search for David. But the same is true, obviously, of Saul, that God does know the heart. He sees the heart of man. So it's not just a matter of someone bending their knee and telling Samuel, I'm, I'm desirous of repentance. I want to repent. The repentance is not given to, to Saul because obviously the Lord sees the heart and he knows things that we don't. That Samuel has, or that Saul has demonstrated not an actual heartfelt desire for repentance. And that's going to be evident here in just a second. Um, so he has feared the people and he says that that he has listened to their voice, that he has feared them. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of feeling where you've actually had to disappoint somebody before in your life, especially if it's somebody who, who is uh, of, of some prominence and power. But here is Saul who has led his people through battle on a number of occasions. And let's just say, Saul doesn't have the greatest track record when it comes to military battles. We've seen that over the last couple of chapters. He swears an oath that none of his people can even eat. And that's crazy. Why would he do that to his military? He holds his military up on a hill while Jonathan, his son, his only son, or his oldest son is, is out, the heir to the throne is out fighting the Philistines there as they're scattering. He still kind of holds his men on a hill. There's only 600 of them. All the rest of them have left. And so Saul is uh, not the, well, the brightest uh, bulb in the box, as it were, um, when it comes to military battle. So can you imagine when you as a general or as a military man, why do you, why do you get in the military, by the way? Why do you join the military in this day? You, you go and you conquer people. What is it that you're wanting? The spoils of war. That's why you go into battle, is to get the spoils of war, all the things. They, remember, at one point, they didn't even have any spears before the Philistines. So, I mean, going into battle was money, was food, was, uh, was so in, in a day where things like this were scarce, this is a big deal. So here are these military men. Can you imagine telling all them who are hungry for the spoils of war, we just conquered the Amalekites so thoroughly that all of them except for their king are dead. Burn it all to the ground. That's not going to go over very well. And it's very clear that it doesn't go over very well because he knows that their voice is saying something different to him and he has listened to their voice instead of the voice of the Lord. So the one that is the more pressing need is the one that he chooses to listen to because it's going to cost him the most capital to tell them what the Lord is telling us, that we have to burn it to the ground. So it's clear that he heard the voice of his people, and he obeyed them. And when it comes to competing voices, the voices of man that's standing nearest to him versus the voice of God, Saul's intent is to listen to the voice of man. But you see, fear of man is called out specifically in the Bible as sin. When you know what is the right thing to do, and you fail to do it, because you are fearful of man, it demonstrates that you are not fearful of God. That's a huge problem. Look at Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man 
lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Isaiah 51, 12 to 13. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the Son of Man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor who, when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? So you can see that the Lord is saying, no, no, no. There's only one that gives true comfort, and that's me. There's only one person that you should fear, and that's me. Not the man who dies, who's mortal, who's going to be made like grass. You should fear the one who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. That's the one you should fear. The one who created you and with a snap could Thanos-style get rid of you if you chose, right? Everybody's like, who's Thanos? Uh, so, um, do what? Yeah, <laughs> wrong Dano. Thanos. Never mind. Don't worry. It was a bad joke. I admit it was a bad joke. Um, but anyway, can, can, can rid the earth of you if he wanted to. It's him you should fear. And so when we have this, uh, which is what Saul clearly is struggling with the most, is this idea of the fear of man. It seems every time he encounters someone closer in physical proximity to him than he feels God is, he listens to their voice instead. That's a problem for a leader, not least of which the king who is supposed to establish the kingdom of God. Well, you can't have someone establishing the kingdom of God who isn't going to listen to the voice of God, but is instead going to listen to the voice of the serpent. This is the problem with Adam. This has been the problem with leaders all over, is fear of man. Um, Now, so Saul gives this passionate plea for forgiveness, and he reaches out as Samuel tells him, look, it's over. The conversation is done. The Lord is tearing the kingdom away from you. Samuel goes to leave, and Saul reaches out and grabs the hem of his robe in desperation, and out of sheer happenstance, an accident, really, he rips the hem of uh, uh, Samuel's robe. And Samuel looks at him, and he says, that's exactly what the Lord is going to do to you, is tear the kingdom away from you. Now, it's probably true, and I, I think this is true, that, um, that the robe is a symbol of power and authority. And we know that from several passages here that are, are, are listed following that where people actually give their robes as a sign of submission, as a sign of, um, um, if you will, uh, goodwill and that we're going to follow you. Uh, Jonathan does this to David. Uh, there's a couple of different passages that sort of seem to indicate that the, the robe is sort of a symbol of, of power, of a man's power and authority, uh, as it were. And so him ripping this, uh, the him from Samuel's robe seems to indicate uh, just this irreparable damage between Samuel and Saul and an irreparable damage between the Lord and Saul as well. So Samuel uses that as kind of a, um, the, the, the sort of the last straw and a symbol of what exactly is happening here. Now, when Saul, when, gosh, I will so be so happy when David is made king so that I don't have to say the name Saul again because Saul and Samuel get twisted in my uh, tongue. I can't stalk Drake. Um, so when uh, Samuel's robe is 
torn. It gives him uh, the, the kind of the parallel that the kingdom is being torn away from you. And you have to know that when Samuel walks away, he's never going to see Saul again alive. So Saul will be dead before Samuel returns. So, um, so point being, this is it. It's a, it's a complete tearing away of everything that Saul knows and all comfort that he has. And we're going to see that even greater in just a few verses. So Saul uh, makes this another impassioned plea. Actually, let's read 1 Samuel 20, 15, 27 to 29 just to hear that again. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now we've seen, and we talked about a little bit about that, or we talked a lot about that last week, so I won't rehash it here, but, um, but suffice it to say, Samuel's reiteration of this to, to Saul, that he will not, that he doesn't have regret and he doesn't experience regret, is the idea of repentance. In other words, the Lord is not going to turn from what he has just said. What he has said, he's tearing the kingdom away from you. That's it. It's over. Now, so Saul does this. He has the hem of, of Samuel's robe. But then look what happens next. Um, read 1 Samuel 15, 30 to 31. Somebody out loud. Okay, so Samuel gives in here, but look at what Saul is doing. This is not, he knows that what uh, Samuel has said is true. This is, this is done. It's over. And so Saul's bargain chip here is come back with me and before the elders and before the nation of Israel, let me bow before the Lord. What's Saul doing? He's saving face. That's all he's doing. He wants to save face in front of the nation of Israel. Um, it's one thing if the Lord has left me. So the reasoning goes like this. If your fear is the fear of man, and that's your, uh, the one you answer to the most is mankind around you over the voice of the Lord, then when the Lord has rejected you, okay, that's fine. I can deal with that. But don't let the men reject me. Saul's concern still is the people. And so he goes back before the people and Samuel allows him to bow before the Lord there and express his repentance, but it doesn't change the Lord's mind in any way. The kingdom is still going to be ripped away from Saul. But before the elders and the people of Israel, they look at him and they say, look at that, a man bowing before the Lord and confessing his sin. So at the very least, the nation of Israel isn't torn asunder by corruption and chaos in that they've seen and they think that their leader is perhaps following after the Lord. But it seems that all Saul cares about doing is saving face before the nation of Israel, um, which is problematic to say the least. Um, and then, to make matters worse, if you're going to actually walk in repentance, and if your repentance is true, we've talked about this a number of times, there's the, I'm facing my sin, there's the confession of sin. I did this. It was wrong. You have me dead to rights. Confession of sin. Right? 
that means you're turning your back on your, your sin. You're turning around. But then there's walking in repentance, which means you're actually picking up attitudes and behaviors and habits that are opposite of what you've just done. So in Saul's case, that would be not only confessing your sin and turning away from it, but refusing to listen to the voice of the men around you when you know what's right, but also walking in repentance and actually doing what the Lord required of you to begin with. So there's sheep, cattle, oxen, and all kinds of other animals that are nice, fattened, and all of this that are around them that are bleeding, right, that, that Samuel hears. And then there's Agag, the king. Now, what should Saul do if he's walking in repentance? You're right. You caught me dead to rights. I sinned. Bring to me the sheep. Let me kill them all and burn them. Bring to me Agag. Let me kill him and burn him alive to rectify what I've done. That would be walking in repentance. Saul doesn't even do that. The one who actually kills Agag is Samuel. Look at the end here of chapter 16. Um, I'm going to actually read uh, sorry, act, chapter 15, um, in, starting in verse 32. Uh, did I put 32 on there? Yeah, 32 and 33. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Uh, that could be cheerfully, or it also could be in chains. It's, it's a weird, it, it, it's, I know it sounds like, how could those two be? You know, sometimes we have words that, very, that sound very similar but, but mean different things. And so um, that, that would be kind of true here. Uh, Hebrew doesn't have vowel points. The original Hebrew doesn't have vowel points. So we, you get three consonants, and that's pretty much it. And so sometimes the roots are very similar, and you're not quite sure what it could be. And in this case, it could be Agag has thought, hey, I'm going to live. And so he comes brought to Samuel. He's like, hey, brother, I'm one of you guys now. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, so this the question: Is he coming cheerfully? And he's saying, he's saying, "Hey, yeah, death is past. This is it's over, right? We're we're good. Everything's good between us." Or is he coming in chains and going, "Surely, all the death stuff is over, right? Like we're not talking about." So it's kind of hard to tell in Hebrew which which is true. And so there's notes you'll notice in the ESV that kind of give you, it could be this, it could be that. Um, but then he says in verse 33, and Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, he's talking to Agag, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So Samuel has this kind of, I don't know what to say, but you know, diehard moment where he just sort of gives this last little line that uh, I'm about to hack you to bits before he, this is like an action movie is what this is. And then he just, he just chops him up. Yeah, his robe is torn. He's mad. So he doesn't have anything to live for anymore. So he's like, whatever, uh, killing anything inside. But <laughs> notice that Samuel is the one that actually rectifies the situation with Agag. Samuel's the one that makes it right. Samuel's the one that actually does. So it's proof in him killing Agag that that's actually what the Lord wanted him to do, was desirous of him to do. Well, it would have been far better for Saul to do it. And if Saul's actually walking in repentance, shouldn't he have been the one that thought, oh, I need to pick up the sword and I need to kill Agag? And yet he still was unwilling to do that. So it's obvious as you go through the story and you think about it, uh, Saul is... is Confessing with his mouth, but not believing in his heart. 
um, as it were. So he failed. This is the irony in the story, the reversal here, is that he failed to listen to God, and so God is going to refuse to speak. You fail to listen to God, he refuses to speak. So there's this, this is true even today. Uh, Paul tells us this in Romans 1. Though they knew God, they neither acknowledged him as God or gave him thanks. Right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And God gave them over. He gave them over. And the result of him giving them over is all kinds of craziness. Some of us mentioned some of those things in our very own country going on right now, the redefinition of marriage, the definition of sexuality, and all those kinds of things. That's at least very parallel to what Paul says God has done in Romans 1, is that he has given them over. Well, what are we going to see happen with Saul? God's Spirit is going to leave Saul, and God, it, this text is going to tell us, God is going to send to him an evil and tormenting spirit to make him restless. It's a giving over. That's exactly what's happening. He refused to listen to the voice of God, so he's not going to speak anymore. And instead, he's going to get plenty of other voices in his head. Um, now we turn to David, um, where God actually tells Samuel that he is going to be providing for himself a king. Somebody reads 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 3. All right, so God is telling Samuel, I'm going to provide for myself a king. And so it's very clear in this chapter, there's a tone, there's a change in tone where God is actually selecting the king. Now, this is actually really important for 1 Samuel 16 because in 1 Samuel 16, there is this word meaning provide. We also will see it, it has a, a connotation of to see or to look at. It has, uh, it, when it's used in the noun, it has the, the root, when it's used as a noun, it has the meaning of appearance, and it occurs nine times in this chapter. And then there is also the contrasting word or the opposite word that means not chosen that, is, that occurs three times in this chapter. So there is this tone throughout the entire chapter where this word, and it doesn't really come across in English because it's translated a few different ways, but it becomes the, it's the same root used throughout that means providing or see or look at or appearance. All of those have that same, come back to that same root word. What it gives to us, the reader, is an, is an understanding that in this chapter, all we have seen before this is Israel choosing its king. Now you might say, well, God chose Saul, right? I mean, the casting lots, he selected Saul, he told Samuel where he was going to be. Yes, that's all true. God chose the king. However, who wanted the king? Israel, 
Remember, Israel took the blame for stepping out on the limb and saying, God, we reject the person that Sam, the people that Samuel has appointed to lead us, whom really you gave to Samuel to appoint to lead, to lead us. We reject them, and therefore we're rejecting you, and we want a king just like the rest of the nation. And so remember the Bible says that they asked for a king, and so God gave them a king by the name of Ask, Saul. Uh, So he gives them exactly what they're asking for. So while, yes, God is selecting the king, theologically what's going on is Israel is selecting their own king. They've sort of usurped God, and they've demanded their their own king for their own possession. And who does God give to them? Well, he gives them the tallest, the strongest, the most handsome man in all the land. And everyone is thrilled with that, in spite of the fact that he's hiding by the luggage. Let's be honest, he's eight feet tall, and the Philistines are really tall. I don't know if he's really eight feet tall, but the Philistines are really tall, and they have this guy named Goliath who's massive, and so it would be really awesome if we had a really tall, big guy to lead us into battle, and that's what we want. You can kind of see that that idea of a king is actually not foreign In fact, it's prevalent even in Samuel's own heart and his own thought as to what a king would be. So in this chapter, though, there's a tone change. Now God is saying, okay, you had your selection, and this is what happened. Now let me select, and let's see what happens. Let's see how this goes. Okay, so Yahweh uh, has told Samuel that when he gets there, He's going to select the king, and he's, he doesn't even tell Samuel what to do. He doesn't tell him the name of the king. He doesn't tell him any of that. He just says, go to the house of Jesse, and when you get there, then I'll tell you what to do. Fill your horn with oil. You'll, you'll meet him when you get there. So Samuel goes to Jesse, and first Samuel walks into the village, and the village people at the gate recognize Samuel, and they ask him up front, why are you here? Are you here for good or for ill? Are you for us or against us? Okay. And Samuel says, just relax. I'm here for completely benign purposes. And so they're like, okay, good. They breathe a sigh of relief. They let him through. He goes to the house of Jesse and he calls Jesse and he says, I need you to bring me all of your sons. Well, he brings him his sons, at least seven of them. And the first person that Samuel sees is Eliab, who is Jesse's oldest son. He is big and beautiful and handsome and strong. And Samuel says to himself, that's got to be the guy. Surely. Look at 1 Samuel um, 16, 6. Somebody read that out loud. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before (laughs) So you can see that the attitude that's prevalent in Israel for what it means to be a king is also in Samuel's heart somewhere too. Uh, Surely Samuel's this righteous guy and and there's not going to be any... Let's turn the selection of the king over to him. No, no. Even Samuel cannot be trusted with this task. And God assures him, Samuel, you have your thought about what a king is... But only Yahweh sees the heart of a man. You, as holy and righteous as Samuel is, still cannot look beyond the exterior to actually see the heart. That's what he tells him in 16.7. Look at, uh, somebody read 16.7 for me. The Lord said to Samuel, not look at the 
So there is this thing that's being communicated to us, the reader, as we're reading through this. If God's kingdom is going to be established, the king cannot be in the image of Saul. He has to be in the image of God's own heart. We hear this a number of times throughout the scriptures, that David was a man after God's own heart. Now, what does that really mean? It's calling back to Genesis language of being made in the image of God. Of course, humanity is made in the image of God. Saul, Saul is made in the image of God, humanly speaking. He's a created being just like the rest of us. But David here is made in the image of God's own heart. He's a man after God's own heart. His heart is the same as what God's heart is. And so to establish God's kingdom on the earth, which is what we've said Israel is poised to do or is, is supposed to do, in order to do that, the heart of a man actually has to be patterned after the heart of God. And so it's not until we get to David that we actually see this happening. So then Saul anoints David, as, or he, he basically, um, Jesse calls all of his sons, first seven of his sons, and all of them are rejected for various reasons. And Samuel says to Jesse, is this, is this all of your sons? He says, yeah, well, there's one other, but he's young and he's squirrely and he's out tending the sheep. And there's, there's people that disagree about what that means as to whether Jesse is saying he's too young, you wouldn't even like him, or if he's saying, well, he's watching the sheep. And so there's no telling where he is. I mean, he could be on that hillside or that hillside. Because Samuel, right after that, says, well, send somebody to get him. We won't sit down until he gets here. <laughs> so, like, okay, we'll run and go get him. Just find him quick because I want to sit down. So uh, David comes running up, and as soon as he comes running up, the Lord tells him, that's the guy. That's the one. Um, so w- one thing that's evident in the story as kind of a uh, confirmation that David is indeed the one, is that upon his anointing, the Spirit of God comes upon him. And what we're going to talk about uh, uh, next year is that not only does the Spirit of God come upon David and leave Saul, but a tormenting spirit is sent to Saul. Um, And so David gets this sort of rush of the Spirit of God, as it were, which is uh, anytime the Spirit of God rushes upon an individual is always confirmation that the Lord is there, right? They're given supernatural wisdom, and sometimes in some cases, like in Samson's strength um, and various other things. In the New Testament, uh, discernment and uh, conviction of sin and reminder of the teachings of Jesus. So we see that in Pentecost as the Spirit rushes upon uh, their the apostles first and, and the church later. And then what you see as you track through the book of Acts is everywhere uh, salvation comes to a new group of people, what happens? The Spirit descends. They begin doing all kinds of things that exhibit the fact that the Lord is there. So this has always been the case, and a lot of people want to make big things out of those tiny little passages, but what it's designed to tell us is that the Spirit of God is, is there. And it is, in fact, 
uh, for sure that salvation, for instance, has come to the Gentiles or various other people as uh, it goes through the book of Acts. But the Spirit of God rushes upon David here as confirmation that, uh, that this was an actual true anointing. And so Yahweh is going to not only choose David, but then he is going to equip him for that work. So you have to understand that not only is David young, which we're going to talk about in a second, David is young, but he's also been uh, tasked with a really tall order. Saul is still alive. So much so that Samuel is kind of scared about going to anoint David when Saul is still alive because he tells God, when God tells him to go, he's like, well, if I go, Saul and Saul finds out he's going to kill me. So it's now David is anointed. And here is this little kid who's been anointed king and the king of Israel is still alive. What do you think the king of Israel is going to do to David when he finds out that he's been anointed? I know what I would do if I was tormented by an evil spirit. I would try to kill him, okay? And that's what is going to end up happening. But David is going to be equipped. God knows he's young, and part of the running from Saul is going to be equipping him for that work. And wouldn't you know, just out of sheer happenstance, when Saul is tormented by a spirit, who does he call into the court to play music for him but David? That's got to be just chance, right? I mean, that's just luck. Uh, Surely that that, whatever. But... All of that is God equipping David for the role that he actually had for him, to be aware of what happens inside the court, to be close to the king and understand how the king operates and what goes on from day-to-day life, and then to run from the king with all his life and still continue to demonstrate for the nation of Israel not only that the Lord's Spirit is upon him as he kills his ten thousands, but also that he refuses to kill Saul, which speaks of his integrity. So, uh, he equips him. Now, David comes to the throne. This is just deduction here we're going to do. David comes to the throne of Judah in 1011 at the age of about 30. Okay? So, that would mean that he was born in the year 1041, which is about 10 years after Saul began his reign. Saul began his reign in 1051. And so now David is born in 1041. So the estimate is, and it's probably pretty pretty good estimate, is that David was probably somewhere around the age of 12 when he is anointed king. That's going to be close. It's probably, it could be you know, plus or minus a few years, but probably more plus a few years, if anything. But somewhere around the age of 12, which would put it in the early 20s, Uh, when Saul is rejected um, and when David is anointing. And that keeps with pretty well with the age of Samuel, who would have been about 90 at the time. So Samuel's an old dude. And um, when David is anointed, and David is a young, 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 young man when he is anointed. So you can imagine why he's depicted as so scrawny and skinny, but also a good-looking kid. All right? so, what do we take from all of this? What are, we, what are we supposed to see from all of this? Well, one thing is true, that the, the people in the ancient Near East saw the king as one who was supposed to be enabled by the gods to accomplish their purposes on the earth. So, the king was always seen in the ancient Near East 
as, um, how, how should I say this, uh, someone who was their son, who was adopted into their family, who was um, basically a son of the gods. This is why you have these kinds of mythologies of kings, that they are made from God, that they are God, various other things, that they're the son of God, that they're all of these kinds of things. We see this in Egypt. We see this in a lot of ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, kingdoms and things like this as well. The reason that they are supposed to be cut from the same cloth as the gods is because they are to achieve God's purposes on the earth. That the earth is the gods, and what, the God, what God hopes to accomplish is done through the one that is cut from his cloth. So when the Bible communicates David as one being a man after God's own heart, the indication there is not only that God has chosen him, but that David is actually going to accomplish God's will on the earth and accomplish his purposes. Well, what is his purposes? Since the Garden of Eden, to establish his kingdom on the earth and to rule with his law. But fallen man cannot accomplish this. A man after God's own heart is supposed to accomplish his purposes. So David is seen in the scriptures, and it's communicated this way in the scriptures, that he's, uh, he's the original kind of son of God, as it were. He's adopted in the family. It doesn't mean the same thing it means with Jesus, but it's, he's kind of adopted into God's family because he represents God on the earth, and he's establishing a human dynasty over which God's very own son, eventually, Jesus Christ himself, would reign. So he's the prototype, as it were. And we're going to see that even David fails at this. Because as it turns out, fallen humanity, as close as they are to the Lord, still cannot replicate God's kingdom on the earth. And as it turns out, only one actually can. And that's Jesus Christ. Oddly enough, this same king of the universe, through whom all things were made, co-eternal with the Father, doesn't come born in a palace either. He's born in a manger. And it's proof yet again that the pattern for God is actually not selecting the tallest and the biggest and the brightest, but actually one whose appearance was not comely that we should look at it, as Isaiah says. Instead, he's born in a manger. He's born to a teenage mother. He's born to a poor carpenter. He's born in a tiny little village in Bethlehem. He is not attractive in any way. And yet, that is the one who will establish God's kingdom on the earth. What David and Solomon and Saul, for that matter, could never do. Questions? Go ahead, David. You are getting ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You can email me your question. That way I know it's coming. No, go ahead. He's a prodigy, apparently. Young as he is, he's, yeah. Right. In the hinterlands, 
Yeah, well, um, I think in reality, what, what probably is going on, uh, the biblical authors do this quite a bit, is they'll jump ahead in the timeline and won't tell you how far they're jumping ahead. So what you hear is a spirit of the Lord <laughs> departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let uh, our Lord now command uh, your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre and, uh, and all this. And so they, they actually find David. Yeah, I mean, we could be jumping ahead in the timeline eight years, you know, and, you know because he's not going to take the throne until he's 30. So we don't know exactly how many years are, are, are there that they're jumping ahead. I think that's also true. I mean, that's obviously true in even this timeline. It feels like, well, it was only a few weeks ago that we got to Saul's anointing of the kingdom, but it was actually, I don't know how many years that was, but Saul's been king for some years now um, before we even get to the rejection. But you wouldn't really know that in the story if you don't sit down and kind of do the math on when David is born and when he takes the throne and then kind of trace it back. So we're obviously jumping ahead in the story and we're only told this much of Saul's life, little tidbits here and there uh, throughout the story. So. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, that's true. Um, yeah, you also notice too, I think, um, there, there's, a, there's an alternative explanation, even as I'm thinking about it. Um, the spirit of the Lord rushing upon David, uh, well, it certainly draws him into the king's court, that's for sure. And, you know, there's also probably, I'm sure, some supernatural lyre and harp playing abilities, I'm sure, that are given to him. Uh, hey, if Samson can rip down gates and, and, you know, defeat lions with the jawbone of a donkey or whatever, then, then, I, then I'm sure David could shred solos, wicked solos on the lyre, you know. Questions? Other questions? Go ahead, Timothy. Yes, there's actually some, as far as the uh, deception of Satan in uh, the beast and the false prophet in Revelation, there's an unholy trinity that's, that's sort of created there in Revelation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, part of the reason we believe in congregational authority is that the Holy Spirit indwells people in his, uh, in his congregation. They heard about him chopping Agag to bits. <laughs> Does he have a sword in his hand? I don't I can't tell. Can you? <laughs> Well, let's, let's pray, and then we'll end. Heavenly Father, thank you for a time to get together to just study your word and um, to think about it and, and to, to hear 
the many, many, really infinite number of things that we see in this text that we could draw from and apply to our hearts. And, and there's, there's no doubt millions that I totally missed or didn't even think about it. Um, I pray that you would apply those as uh, you see fit to the hearts of each and every one of us in this room. Um, but then also as we think about all of the, the many ways in which we are fearful of the people next to us, um, in spite of what we know you've told us, and um, even when we go to evangelize, for, as an example, and we think about the people that are uh, hearing what we're saying, we, we sometimes get timid and swallow our own tongues. And, um, these are more examples of just what your word tells us not to do, and we desperately do not want to be like Saul uh, at all. But by your Spirit's help, we might be um, people after your own heart who have hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone, who listen to your word and who apply it to our lives, that we may be changed. And having encountered you in your word, that we could um, walk out with a, con a strange confidence, knowing that what your word tells us is true and timeless, regardless of what people around us might say, and that we could rest on those things, even when we don't understand them, um, that we would be able to put confidence, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.